This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another exciting week on The Rounds Table here. It's Kieran Quinn, your host, a general internist and palliative care physician in Toronto at the University of Toronto. I am joined by a familiar face in many different fashions, and soon to be the future, Dr. Emily Hughes, who is also, of course, our fearless leader and head producer on the show. Future Dr. Hughes also was just recently accepted into the internal medicine program at the University of Toronto. Round of applause, but no surprise there. Uh, Future Dr. Hughes, welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Thanks, Kieran. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Fantastic, as always, and raring to go for another great episode. So let's jump right on in. Emily, why don't you introduce the article that you chose for us on the show this week? I am covering the Credence trial, which is canagliflozin and renal outcomes in type 2 diabetes and nephropathy. So this article was just recently published in April of 2019 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, well, New England Journal of Medicine, as we like to cover, always usually an important study to talk about. So tell us, Emily, what's the bottom line for the Credence trial? So bottom line, in this double-blind, randomized, controlled trial of approximately 4,000 patients with type 2 diabetes and kidney disease, the risk of kidney failure and cardiovascular events was lower in patients treated with canagliflozin compared to placebo, and this was at a median follow-up time of approximately two and a half years. All right. The world of diabetes pharmacology marches on with some major, major stuff that's happened in the last five years. So tell us, in that context, why did you choose to cover the Credence trial on the rounds table? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we know that type 2 diabetes is a leading cause of kidney failure worldwide. And unfortunately, there aren't that many long-term effective treatments. Currently, the mainstay is through blockade of the RAS system using an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. So SGLT2 inhibitors, the gliflozins, were initially designed for glycemic control, but it actually seems as though there may be additional class benefits to these medications. So longtime listeners of the rounds table will remember that you and Paxton covered the CANVAS trial in 2017, which showed that canagliflozin was quite protective in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. So secondary and exploratory analyses of CANVAS also suggested that SGLT2 inhibitors might offer renal protection in patients with type 2 diabetes. So with this in mind, Credence was designed to assess the effects of canagliflozin on renal outcomes in patients with type 2 diabetes and albuminuric CKD. Very well set. I'm intrigued. All right. So take us through the design of this trial. So like I said, this was a multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Pretty classic. And who did they include in the Credence trial? Patients were eligible for the trial if they were at least 30 years old and had type 2 diabetes with a hemoglobin A1c of between 6.5 and 12%. As well, all participants were required to have chronic kidney disease. So this was defined by the trial investigators as a GFR of 30 to 90 mils per minute and a urine albumin to creatinine ratio of greater than 300. As well, all patients were on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB for at least four weeks prior to randomization, and they continued on this medication throughout the trial. I'll be interested to see what the mean GFR is on the patients they actually included because... Canadian Diabetes Association currently in their guidelines caution against the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in people with GFRs sort of in the 40 to 45 or whose GFRs and renal functions are labile. So let's see what happens here. But enough of that. Tell me what was the actual randomized intervention in this 
So the actual randomized intervention, patients were assigned to either 100 milligrams of oral canagliflozin once daily or placebo after a two-week run-in period. Okay, and what was the measurement as far as the primary outcome? We've already given a hint about renal and cardiovascular outcomes. Yeah, exactly. So just expanding on that point a little bit. So primary outcome was a composite of end-stage kidney disease, doubling of the serum creatinine level from baseline, or death from renal or cardiovascular cause. And some secondary outcomes they looked at included cardiovascular outcomes such as death, heart failure, myocardial infarction, or stroke. So they took a cohort of individuals with type 2 diabetes that was between optimal to suboptimal control and not perfect GFR, so some sort of nephropathy likely due to diabetes, and they cleaned them out with a run-in period, and then they put them on 100 milligrams of canagliflozin, which is actually just the initial starting dose most often recommended, but can be titrated up to 300 milligrams. So an interesting choice of a dose which is sort of below the maximum dose, perhaps and probably done intentionally. So we'll see what happens. What were the results? Emily, take us through what they mainly found. So I think the first thing to point out is that the trial was actually stopped early by the Data Safety Monitoring Board after the planned interim analysis showed that the primary outcome had been met. So this is something just interesting to point out. And what they found was that the relative risk of the primary outcome was nearly 30% lower in the canagliflozin group than in the placebo group. As well, there was a 20 to 30% lower relative risk of adverse cardiovascular outcomes supporting canvas. Uh, as well, as expected, the hemoglobin A1C levels, as well as blood pressure and body weight, were reduced in the canagliflozin arm compared to placebo. Something else important to point out is that rates of adverse events, amputations, fractures were similar between the two groups. There was a slightly increased rate of DKA in the canagliflozin group compared to the placebo group. However, overall rates of DKA were low, just 2.2 versus 0.2 per thousand patient years. So, yeah, and I think we've seen that risk bear, bore out, borne out. I think we've seen that risk borne out in the literature so far. And our good friend, Mike Freilich, who also appears regularly on the show, has done some work around estimating that risk of DKA. So I think that is recognized now as a real risk, although very low incidence. Mm -hmm. So on the basis of the trial data, the investigators projected that among a thousand patients treated with canagliflozin for two and a half years, 22 would need it to be treated to prevent the primary composite outcome of end-stage kidney disease, doubling of serum creatinine level or renal or cardiovascular events. As well, among the same group of patients, treatment with canagliflozin would prevent 22 hospitalizations for heart failure, 25 composite events of cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke. Right, and I think those are the important uh, subgroups to focus on is really where this derived benefit of the composite outcome is being driven uh, from, so to speak, which is really heart failure hospitalizations and end-stage kidney disease or doubling of serum creatinine, right? So again, what we've seen in EMPOREG and other SGLT2 trials about hospitalization for heart failure, and then this one really gives you some teeth as far as the primary outcome of renal-related adverse effects of uh, hyperglycemia. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. I'm glad to hear that we've uh, made some further evidence in the world of diabetes with SGLT2 inhibitors. So tell me, Emily, what are some interesting things you wanted to point out or perhaps concerns you had around the trial itself? 
yeah, so overall, I thought this is pretty straightforward trial, well conducted. The one thing I just wanted to mention was that, uh, you know, since the trial was stopped early, this may have limited the power for assessing some of the secondary outcomes and could have potentially led to an overestimation of the effect sizes. But, you know, that said, the consistency of this trial's findings with previous large trials of SGLT2 inhibitors like Canvas and Empereg suggests that this limitation is unlikely to have a large effect on the findings. So for me, the interesting caveat, if you want to call it that, is really sort of the population that they ended up including, right? Mean GFR is 56. So you're talking about not very severe renal injury secondary to their diabetes. Although, as mentioned in the intro, these medications are to be used with caution in people with more severe nephropathy. The other point is that their mean glycated hemoglobin or hemoglobin A1C was 8.3%. So by some standards, in certain populations, that would actually be within a reasonable range. I think in this group, you would be pushing more for a 7.5% or below a hemoglobin A1C target. But nevertheless, certainly not as severely suboptimally controlled diabetics as I would see in some of my practice. So just something about the generalizability to sort of think about who might be benefiting most. Yeah, great points, Karen. All right, Emily. So um, wrap it up for us here. What do you think the main learning points that we should take away here from Credence are? So, you know, in summary, among patients with type 2 diabetes, with the caveats that you mentioned, um, and kidney disease, the Credence trial showed that canagliflozin at 100 milligrams daily reduced the risk of kidney failure and cardiovascular events compared to placebo at a mean follow-up of about two and a half years. So, you know, given that we only have ACE inhibitors and ARBs to help slow the onset of diabetic nephropathy and stabilize renal function, Credence is a very relevant and important to clinical practice. So it's definitely data to be embraced by patients with diabetes and the clinicians who treat them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And the one thing I kind of like about this trial is that unlike most other, say, cardiovascular trials we've seen previously that are using, you know, a maximum dose of, say, ramipril or some other ACE inhibitor, this trial actually uses the starting dose of canagliflozin rather than the 300 milligram max. So it's it's a bit more pragmatic in that sense, if you like, that, you know, many patients are going to be started on that dose and you're not going to be limited by its therapeutic effects by having to try to get it up to some higher dose. So that's kind of neat. The one caveat I also add, though, is that these medications are expensive, very expensive, in fact. And so that will limit access for some folks around the world unfortunately, but something to keep in mind when we're trying to adopt these medications into clinical practice. Yeah, great point. Okay. Well, thanks, Emily. That's a fantastic start to the show. So let's move on to the study that I chose to cover for this week. And it's actually sort of a take two, so to speak. I'm covering a part of the Cabana trial that Mike Fralick and John Fralick, the brothers Fralick, so to speak, covered on their rapid fire. But I wanted to hone in on the quality of life study that was published in the companion to the one that the Fralick brothers covered. And so this is the Cabana, but sort of Cabana quality of life study. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting that they had the two articles that came out together, one focused on the hard outcomes and one focused on the quality of life measures. So I'm really excited to get into part two. Tell me, Karen, what's the bottom line for this article? So the Cabana trial, published in JAMA in March of 2019 by Daniel Mark et al., was a multi-center randomized trial of just over 2,200 patients with symptomatic atrial fibrillation. And it found that catheter ablation compared with conventional medical therapy for atrial fibrillation significantly improved patient-reported quality of life at one year. Big deal. 
while the other outcomes, such as mortality, stroke, and cardiac arrest that were discussed by the Freilich brothers in the Cabana trial, were not actually found to be different uh, when comparing the two therapies. Really, we have to remember that in medicine, we try to make our patients feel better in addition to trying to make them live longer or reduce their morbidity. But this trial demonstrates an improvement in making patients feel better. And patients come to their doctors with atrial fibrillation because they don't feel very well because of the symptoms. So I think this is critical and a crucial study to pay attention to when it comes to the management of atrial fibrillation. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you on that. Anything else you wanted to expand upon about why you chose this article personally or why it's important in the broader literature? Yeah, I think, I mean, we've made significant advancements in the last 10 years with the advent of DOACs as far as anticoagulation and stroke prevention strategies. Warfarin was a pain when people were almost 40 to 50% of the time out of therapeutic range. So we've simplified that. I think we've improved care in that sense. But when ablation was first introduced in the 90s, early 1990, it was really a last resort therapy, but now has actually become much more widely used for many different reasons. And even though it was sort of originally promised as a cure to atrial fibrillation that didn't actually pan out because there's a large minority of people who recur, it actually suggests that there is some improvement of quality of life with this treatment compared to some of the medications that have significant side effects. So because we want to make our patients feel better, and this might do so, we embark on the Cabana trial to try to answer that question in a high quality and appropriately powered way. Makes perfect sense to me. So let's get into the methods a little bit. What was the design of the study? Where did it take place? Yeah, very straightforward, multi-center randomized, now open label. Remember that interventions when it comes to things like ablation or procedures are very challenging to conduct as a trial and have them blinded. It is possible you can undergo sham procedures, but it increases the complexity and the cost of trials significantly so. So this was an open label trial. It took place in 126 sites in 10 countries. It took them six years to enroll an adequate number of patients, which just goes to show you some of the challenges that these trials have. They really included patients of any age who were adults. If you were over the age of 65 and you had symptomatic atrial fibrillation, you were in. If you were less than 65, you had to have one stroke risk factor, you know, by the CHADS-VASC score, and you had to have symptomatic atrial fibrillation as well. So that's very simple, a very wide inclusion criteria. Okay. And we've kind of already touched on this, but what was the intervention or exposure? Right. So they were randomized to receive either catheter ablation, which was using pulmonary vein isolation, and the physicians could actually add in additional ablation procedures at their discretion. And the comparator arm was sort of conventional drug therapy, and that could be either using antiarrhythmic drugs or rate control strategies, again, according to the investigator discretion. This makes for a very pragmatic design in the sense that we're not hemmed into one specific treatment strategy versus the other. We're sort of hemmed into different categories of treatment strategies, and that reflects real-world practice that often we might try a few different things to make patients feel better. Yeah, it seems like the study investigators, this whole group, really did a lot to make sure that the trial was relevant to life in terms of quality of life, as well as how clinical practice just pans out in everyday life. Yeah, it obviously introduces the idea then that you sort of say, well, what exactly did the patients get? Because they might get a variety of different strategies. But again, if you apply that in real life setting, it may be more likely to hold true to what actually happens in real clinical practice. Mm-hmm. So what were the primary outcomes? Any important secondary outcomes as well? 
Yeah, so the important caveat for this trial was that the primary outcome was what the one that was discussed by the Freilich brothers. That was the composite of mortality, stroke, and cardiac arrest. This was a pre-specified secondary, they call it a major secondary outcome, which was the quality of life. So not the primary outcome of the original trial. Just to keep that in mind is for those statistics geeks out there who, who have concerns about that. They measured quality of life in two different ways. They used two validated scores for measuring symptom severity in atrial fibrillation. One was the AFEQT, or the Atrial Fibrillation Effect on Quality of Life Questionnaire, 21-item health-related quality of life questionnaire to assess the effect of atrial fibrillation on patients' quality of life. Patients will get a score of between 0 to 100 that reflects the domains of symptoms, daily activities, and treatment concerns. If you have a 100 score, you have no AF-related disability. Zero is completely disabled by AF. The second score was the Mayo Atrial Fibrillation Specific Symptom Inventory, or the MAFC. Ten items checklist that asks about the frequency and severity of each symptom. And it indicates about these symptoms over the past month on a Likert scale of zero to four. Zero being never, four being always. You get a score from zero to 40. If your score is 40, you have the most severe AF symptoms. They collected these data using structured interviews at the point of randomization and at 3 and 12 months and then every 12 months thereafter. Okay, and what did they find? So I'll tell you a bit about the patients. Typical patient in this trial is a 68-year-old white male. BMI was 30 with moderate to severe AF symptoms who had coexisting hypertension and left ventricular hypertrophy in the context of that hypertension. As far as their stroke risk factors, CHADS VASC score was 3, so sort of a moderate level risk. And most patients were on at least one rhythm control drug. About half were on two rhythm control drugs or had used two rhythm control drugs previously. Last thing that some of you might think about is, well, what kind of atrial fibrillation do they have? Well, 43% had paroxysmal AF and 57% had persistent. Very few had permanent Okay, so it sounds like we have a bit of a mix of AFib patients who've been on a number of different drug therapies. That's right. Tell me, what did they find? So the mean AFEQT, that quality of life score, was more favorable in the catheter ablation group than in the drug therapy group at 12 months. So there was an adjusted difference of 5.3 points in that score. And importantly, just to point out that the minimal clinically important difference is greater than or equal to five points. So they get right at that bottom sort of lower limit of normal difference, but it's still a clinically important difference between the two groups. That was consistent with what they also found in the Massey frequency score, which was, again, favoring catheter ablation. The mean difference in points there was 1.7, and the clinically important difference there was 1.6. So uh, they found clinically important differences in these symptom scores in two different symptom scores between the two arms favoring catheter ablation. Just out of my own curiosity, what were the specific quality of life measures, if you know, that patients seem to indicate most benefit from? Emily, that's a great question. Sort of where, what are we actually affecting when it comes to the different domains of that AFEQT? So remember, it addresses domains of symptoms, domains of daily activities, and domains of treatment concern. It appears to be driven largely by the symptom score and the daily activities. Those were the largest differences. There was a smaller but still important difference in the treatment concerns. But again, when we're talking about the most 
sort of important aspect of atrial fibrillation treatment, which is to relieve symptoms and help people improve their daily activities, that seemed to come out in the wash favoring catheter ablation. Very interesting. Uh, anything else that you found particularly interesting about this trial or observations you wanted to make? Yeah, so I think it's important just to keep in mind that this particular component of the trial, the secondary outcome with patient-reported outcomes, has a very high risk of bias. You have a non-blinded intervention. Patients know that they're undergoing catheter ablation versus taking the drugs. And the outcomes, those self-reported quality of life score, are based on the patient's who are the assessors of those scores. So they have knowledge of the intervention and then they rate their quality of life consequently. However, one thing to keep in mind is that you would expect that a placebo effect, which you might see here, should abate after a year's time. Just the very nature of your symptoms and knowing that you had that procedure a year ago, you wouldn't necessarily think that, that would persist over the entire year. But it might. So just keep it in mind that some of this might be a placebo effect. And as I said before, blinding procedural-based trials is possible, but it makes for a much more complex and costly trial. So you have to be somewhat practical in that sense. The other concern is that 301 patients in the medication arm crossed over and actually received ablation. That's a 30% contamination rate. So that would actually bias towards the null if you had patients feeling better because of the ablation, but they were being analyzed as if they were in the medication arm. And we still show a difference between the two. So that actually helps support the findings and may suggest that their findings are underestimated. Yeah, great point. So Kieran, break it down for me. What are the main learning points of this article? What's the summary? Well, I think that the Cabana trial and the quality of life outcomes are important to pay attention to because Catheter ablation appears to improve quality of life in patients with symptomatic atrial fibrillation. And they used a very pragmatic approach to treatment. All the specifics of what each patient got aren't reported, but that means that you're free to do pulmonary vein isolation and some extra fiddling around to try to make your patient feel better. I think the major limitation to applying this evidence is the ability to access a skilled electrophysiologist who's going to do this. Now it's becoming more commonplace, but you're still limited to a tertiary or quaternary center. So only a few people are gonna be able to undergo this procedure you know, each year. A few being obviously thousands when you scale it up to North America, but it's still not the you know, 10% of the population that's expected to get atrial fibrillation by the time they're in their sort of mid 80s. So I think that will be a, a major limitation. And how to apply this to your practice today? Well, I think if you have that luxury to access ablation and you have a patient in front of you who's symptomatic despite your you know, initial try at some sort of first-line therapies, I would recommend that you uh, refer them earlier on for ablation. But if you can't or you don't have access to an electrophysiologist, be reassured that the results of the Cabana trial also demonstrate that everybody has their quality of life improved with medication therapy or with ablation. It just seems to be that ablation is a little bit better. Great summary. All right, Emily. Well, thanks for the kind words. Uh, let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we are talking about what we are reading about. Tell me, Emily, what has caught your eye this week? Yeah, so I read a 
great article actually in the New York Times published on April the 15th titled In African Villages These Phones Become Ultrasound Scanners. So it actually featured a Toronto doctor, Dr. Bill Cherniak, in his use of the Butterfly IQ ultrasound probe. So this ultrasound probe was designed to bring focus to underfunded and underserviced areas. Essentially it's just an ultrasound probe that plugs into an iPhone. Ultrasound images are then viewed on the iPhone screen. So in the communities that this particular ultrasound probe has been brought to, it really seems to be revolutionizing care. It's been brought to several different communities, mainly in rural Africa. And, you know, the best part is currently the cost of one of these probes hovers around $2,000. So back home for me in Jasper, Alberta, I remember the entire town fundraising for years to bring one bedside ultrasound machine to the community. And the price of this butterfly IQ is so much more affordable than its predecessors. Um, so ultrasound just is becoming that much more accessible to smaller communities. Fantastic. Well, that's nice to hear that prices are coming down and more people are able to access these uh, uh, important health technologies. Mm -hmm. Well, I chose an article, funny, you and I are reading the same feed because I chose an article also from the New York Times health section. And I made me think about whether the future really was here now in light of your comment about ultrasound. This study that was discussed in the New York Times talks about a prosthetic voice that decodes what our brains intend to say and generates mostly understandable speech without the need for any muscle movement at all. So this algorithm and program deciphers the brain's motor commands that guide vocal movement during speech. Like, for example, the tap of a tongue or the narrowing of the lips. And it actually generates intelligible sentences that approximate a speaker's natural cadence. No kidding. Literally mind-blowing stuff. So mind-blowing that I didn't even just want to describe it to you. I wanted to actually play it for you on the show to hear what it sounds like because I was blown away. So give me a second here. I'm going to see if we can tap it into our feed here. And you can hear the example of a person who speaks first and then the iteration of the uh, algorithm's understanding of their brainwaves and then uh, reproduction of that speech. So here we go. Shipbuilding is a most fascinating process. The proof that you are seeking is not available in books. The proof that you are seeking is not available in books. Wow, Kieran, that was awesome. Can't wait to see the applications for expressive aphasias and other types of medical conditions. Yeah, I thought it was really, really cool, the fact that you could do that. So anyways, Emily, thank you for joining us on the show. I really enjoyed our discussion today. I hope you listeners out there enjoyed it too. Uh, stay tuned for next week's episode and enjoy the rest of your week. Great episode, Kieran. The Roundstable is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.